welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Danielle Hanley, and joining me on the other line, now that he's finished making a pro-con list of whether or not he should continue to podcast with me, it's John McMahon. (laughs) You know what, Danielle? Unlike Martha's list, mine came out with the pros ahead. I couldn't think of any cons. Wild. Wild. None. Zero on the con list, just pros. Love. Which uh, hopefully our listeners would would concur with that pro con list assessment. I don't see why not. <laughs> I don't either. I can't imagine <laughs> why hour and forty minute long episodes about the Americans would. would to be, be a fair, con. our latest hour and forty minute episode was only slightly about the Americans. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly true. Exactly true. So this episode, whether it's an hour 40 minutes or not, remains to be seen. We're talking about American Season 1, Episode 12, The Oath, directed by John Dahl, written by Joshua Brand and Melissa James Gibson. And Danielle, what would be the IMDb summary of this episode? Sure. So the IMDb summary for Season 1, Episode 12 is, An Air Force colonel offers to sell SDI secrets to the KGB. Viola reports the bug in the Weinberger home. Philip agrees to marry Martha, hoping she'll continue spying while Nina confesses to spying for the Americans. If that, to you, listener, sounds messy and sounds like a lot of things are happening, you would be correct. You, IMDb, in this episode, in all of those things, there's a large number of stuff that is happening that is going on. So much. But Danielle, conveniently, conveniently... The people behind the Americans titled this episode The Oath. Would you say that this episode about or named The Oath is about oaths? Apparently. Apparently. We've got a lot of oaths in here. Yeah, we do. So we have we have an oath that uh, that Clark slash Philip and Martha make to one another to marry, which why that happened in this season, not the next season, was a question I have. <laughs> There's also the oath that Nina takes to be officially inducted into Director at S. And then arguably there's another oath from her later on. So where among all of these oaths, Danielle, do you want to start? I think let's start with Nina's oath because it is the one that comes most beautifully wrapped mm. in a hand-carved wooden box. Beautiful. With a brooch. I, <laughs> I could, you know, I would be happy to have that parchment paper. I'd be happy to have that ornate box. I'd be happy to have the brooch. Like any of those I am willing to accept as gifts. The paper was so heavy. <laughs> <laughs> But the oath was also heavy, so... Oh, wow, look at... That was a pro move. That was a pro move. This is... That was on the pro list of... Uh, see that? In the podcast is segues Let's see like if that. we can get some cons on there. <laughs> <laughs> we got plenty of, plenty of time, time remaining. Yeah, so let's start with Nina's first oath. Um, box and brooch and pin and all. Um, were you... I know that you have seen this before, but were you surprised by this coming? I was sort of like taken aback that this was, that we were going like this deep here. Yeah. I think that the, uh, that the show has done actually a good job in this line of the plot development about communicating the trust that Arkady has yeah. in Nina, yeah. which turns out to be both utterly misplaced and <laughs> exactly correct. Yeah. <laughs> both of those things by the end of the episode. And so I think that the show had kind of, you know, to use a cliche, had earned this moment between Arkady and Nina. Yeah. And it's clearly also a way for them to speed along the coming collision between Nina and Stan. 
Absolutely. And, and I agree, like this was definitely earned, but it also is like, it's a big jump. Cause for me as, as a first time viewer, this moment either could have been the moment where Arcadi's like, we bugged that apartment and we know what's up though. We know that like Arcadi's not that slick. So, but I could have beg, seen that beg to differ. He's <laughs> he is a vehicle for absurd comedy and is also a good spy would be my yeah. assessment. So like, I wouldn't have been surprised in the moment where he's like, here's your like oath in a box. <laughs> if he was like, uh, here's the weapon I will use to shoot you, you know, like, so I would say that the series at this point has earned like a big Nina moment. Yeah. And so I was excited that it went in this direction. I, I mean, I agree. And I appreciate that the big Nina moment came with a character in Arcadi who actually values Nina's intelligence and skills, right? Where Stan is like constantly lying and bullshitting and misleading, right? And like, yes, Arcadi does not understand the fullness of the situation, but at the same time, he like recognizes Nina's capacity. And I think because of that, there is an emotional bond between Arcadi and Nina that is in some ways deeper than the emotional bond between Nina and Stan ever could be. I totally agree with that. And I think part of it is right. Like, Nina has been threatened and, like, essentially, not essentially, she's been threatened and coerced into this relationship with Stan. And I think there are probably parts of it she enjoys, but ultimately, as she keeps telling him and keeps telling us, like, this is a a relationship born of fear. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, there is something, and this is, there's this nice parallel with, um, Nina and Arcadi and Philip and Elizabeth and that mm-hmm. sort of coming out a little bit in the conflict between Elizabeth and Claudia. Mm-hmm. But there's this nice parallel in that Nina and Arcadi are devoted to their cause, even if Nina has has like sort of fallen into this situation where she has to betray it. She's yes. only betraying it because the only thing above the cause is her life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're right that, like, there is no way that the bond between Nina and Stan could ever touch that. Yeah, and I appreciate the, not only is the oath box ornate, but just the kind of almost pretension and ornateness of that scene itself and the formality of it. I think aesthetically and performance-wise and floridity of the language wise it meets the emotional stakes of that moment for Nina and Arcadi I absolutely agree with that yeah and then conversely we get the scene between Nina and Stan which I mean I I would like to perhaps start I mean so the general observation is that the Danielle this is on the pro list as well theory that essentially Nina is now running Stan right obviously grows in uh, correctness throughout this episode and Nina just plays Stan so brilliantly in yeah. their scene in the safe house. Again, both in what she says to him and her body language and the looks uh, that she gives him and the way she uses her body and like yeah. her sexuality um, and all those ways. Like she is the one that is exercising some power in this condition of coercion, right? Yeah. As you point out. And I th- one of the ways she does that is this dream that she relates to him oh in another God. in another moment of let us give Nina slash the Soviet character some of the most 
um, existential dialogue in all of the Americans. Wow. She has a dream, tells Stan somewhat lightheartedly that she dreamed about him. And then yeah. the dream is that she is in a burning building that just might have been the Soviet embassy. Gee, who knows? <laughs> and uh, she wakes up. She doesn't know if, if Stan's there. She doesn't know if it was Stan who saved her. But, you know, Stan was there and, like, that is both an expression of her understanding the danger that Stan has put her in yeah. while playing Stan to let him give himself the narrative of, I am both the cause and savior of Nina's situation. Well, and I think, like, one of the one of the best parts of that scene, and I think in general the Nina-Stan interactions in this episode and in the series, is that... Ultimately, Stan is always underestimating Nina. Correct. He's underestimating her intelligence, her bravery, like her ability to, you know, make decisions like for herself in her best interests. Like he's always underestimating her. And this is one of those moments where she's telling him, I know you're underestimating me and I'm using it to my advantage. And he's like, let's just fuck. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, she presses him, and now she says it more directly, what she has said less directly in previous episodes. Yeah. It was you that killed Vlad, wasn't it? And Stan, of course, does his usual, I would never do anything to hurt you. You know that. And, like, the thing that Nina knows is that you're lying to her. Yeah. And her face, like, again, the when we talked about the look in Annette Mahendru's eyes is Nina last week, and I think yeah. we ought to recognize that again, that the look she gives Stan while he is saying this is the perfect look of both seducing him to Stan and, and you know, to us as audience, communicating, yeah. like, how in control she is of the fact that she's, you know, responding to Stan's manipulations. Yeah, and it's interesting because... To jump back to the scene with her oath, the yeah. first oath before, Nina has this look, has this, like, dead eyes look when she's, like, that's the scene leaves mm -hmm. on on a shot of Nina with these, like, dead mm -hmm. eyes, right? Mm -hmm. And those are the same eyes that she gives Stan. And, mm. and, like, in both cases, they are duping the the person who is... yeah. Attempting to exert control over her. Yeah. Which I think just generally fits into my broader theory of like um, imperfect or incomplete agency. Mm -hmm. um, so, anyway. A, th a theory that runs across both Danielle's culture podcasting and scholarly work. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, Nina really does try to make use of that limited agency at the scene. Yeah that ends the episode, and this I think speaks again to just how much is going on in this episode, that you have literally Clark and Martha getting married, but Wild. the finale of this particular episode is Nina first confessing to Arkady yeah. very directly, doing the thing that Stan cannot bring himself to do, and that is confess his wrongs in the situation, according to like situational ethics, and then says, you know, this line is just perfect, right? You can kill me or let me redeem myself in the eyes of our beloved Russia, as she yeah. tells uh, Arkady, as she proposes to essentially turn, you know, triple agent, right? And, you know, in inform on Stan and try to get information out of him to bring back to the KGB. Yeah. I would say my only criticism of this storyline is it's 
pretty fast. Yes. Right? It happens all over in the course of, like, 20 minutes. But I think, in general, we've earned this, right? We've earned this. Nina's earned this. Like, we have seen her build up, like, build up these skills and, like, her own knowledge and security in her position to be able to turn turn it against Stan. Yeah, I mean, if we can just take a quick for, like, form slash structure detour for a second, I yeah. agree on the too fast. Like, either Nina's confession and turning or the marriage to between Martha and Clark should have been in the first episode of season two is my is my standing opinion because it would okay. have given one of those two storylines slightly more room to breathe and had let one of them feel less abrupt. Yeah. And I think if you had just one very abrupt thing happening here in this episode, it makes that one abrupt thing work more effectively yeah. on a kind of narrative structural level than be like Martha and Clark get married and Nina confesses and <laughs> says, I'm going to now turn triple agent. Well, and, like, it makes sense as to why when we got into, like, this set of episodes, you were like, the end of season one is bonkers. And, like, this is exactly it, right? It's, like, Nina and Stan, Nina, Nina gets the oath, turn like, and turns on Stan aggressively. Uh, Martha and Clark get married. Like, Elizabeth and Philip maybe are getting divorced. Like, there's <laughs> the, the stuff with Elizabeth and Claudia. Like, now there's also a part that we haven't even talked about, which is, like, yeah, I mean, like, the the stuff we haven't even talked about, which is, like, so Elizabeth and Philip have this, like, mole who's someone that they had recruited, and that guy has recruited someone else who is at the top of the Air Force, and, but then also the FBI is dealing with the, like, the clock and, and, and maybe trying to, like, plant, I don't the know, Air like, Force Colonel. Yeah. <laughs> like, fake, fake stuff to capture the, the KGB agents. Like, so, yes, the, like, Nina turn and the Martha and Clark stuff is wild, but also, that's not even the only wild stuff that's happening in this episode. Yeah, I will say I give the this episode in the show credit for letting the most emotionally resonant of all of those ridiculous things that are happening take prominence yes. and that by ending with the wedding and Absolutely. placing and having several scenes between Martha and Clark slash Philip, although maybe they are in fact two separate things, a la Tori. Um and and the Nina situation yeah. is like taking taking the lead roles in this episode. And like yeah. obviously, you know, and then you know, of course I would say like there are essentially two O's that Nina gives. There's the formal one that she gives at the beginning and then there's this like recommitment to being a triple agent and you know be submitting herself to the judgment of the eyes of the of beloved Russia. Yeah, I think that you're right in that. And I hadn't I hadn't really thought about the second Nina Arcadi scene as another oath, but I think like your read of that as two parallel oaths, I think is is spot on. And I what I really love about it is and what I'm sort of loving about Nina's arc is like this is her empowerment, right? She's like, I'm not able to like exert full control over my circumstances, but like I know that I'm being lied to and like I'm not gonna let this stand. 
And I, it just makes me excited to see sort of like what happens with that. Yeah. And I think that I'm being lied to and I'm going to respond with, by playing Stan and being as brutally honest as I possibly can with Arcadi is the perfect contrast between Arcadi and Stan is characters as like technical superiors in the spy game to yeah. Nina. And also, I mean, like the intro to that scene is well done in the way it contrasts. Like you had Arcadi formally inviting Nina in for the formal oath. And here, like it's nighttime, Arcadi has like rolled up sleeves, his tie is disheveled, his shirt's unbuttoned a couple down. He's like into his second or third or fourth whiskey of the yeah. evening. And like Nina comes in to make this confession and offer to become triple agent. Yeah. And I think the thing I appreciate most about it and like, maybe I'm getting this wrong, but is that with Stan, Nina is in some ways forced to like use her body and use sex to manipulate. And with Arcadi, that's not there. And so like, we've already seen Nina with her superior, right? Like we've already seen the silly. Yeah. We know that she is willing to go that far. And, like, I think that it's interesting and also perhaps telling that that dynamic is not there or at least not necessary in this moment with Arcadi. Yeah. I mean, as the audience will know to an even larger degree next week when we have our special guest on for the finale, like, I'm one of the world's greatest Arcadi stands. <laughs> so, as they could have guessed by my extensive monologuing about his absurd humor. You... You know, I love that that's the thing you love. It's a <laughs> Thank pro. <you. laughs> wow, I'm 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 touched deeply by that. Um also touched deeply in this episode is Martha when Yes. <laughs> yes. When when Clark proposes to her, yeah, like drawing the letters M A R R Y M before uh before Martha says It made yes. me so mad. <laughs> Yeah, they, and, and like, of course, I, I appreciate that the <laughs> that the episode is like they had to drive to Leesburg, Virginia, which I looked up is a solid fifty minutes away from uh. Washington D.C., so that they so that Clark and Martha could wouldn't be seen by yeah. anybody in the actual world. And I would assume that's a different direction out of D.C. than like Falls Church, where. Uh, Philip and Elizabeth and Stan all live. So it's like they have, you know, Martha commenting, oh, well, we had to drive all the way to Leesburg. Um, And of course, like Clark has this whole story set up for that. And like, if we could abstract away the rest of literally everything else about them, there's a certain goofy sweetness and like saccharine quality to this proposal. Yeah. But it's so utterly fucked up on so many levels that like the (laughs) dramatization of this is, I, I really, I, I continue to think like this happened too quickly, the like meeting the parents to the wedding and these two episodes here at the end of season one. But Given that they did that, I thought it was executed really, really excellently. Agree. And also, like, I think that we're supposed to think that it happened too quickly because, like, that, like, the stakes of the relationship with Martha have to match the stakes of what's going on with, like, with the FBI, right? So, like, yeah, it happened too quickly, but, like, Martha's the only one who it would work on. Because, like, yeah. she's 
been deluded by Clark and deluded herself into like this being that like someone who doesn't even want you to, to tell anybody that he's alive like is now proposing to you. This is like one of those things. Sorry. I just, I like have to get this out. This could never happen today because (laughs) 10 of Martha's friends would have done a deep dive on the internet to be like, who is this Clark person? He doesn't Doesn't have a social security number. Doesn't exist. (laughs) Um, yes. (laughs) And the, I mean, the rapidity of the proposal, I will say in trying to decide whether or not the air force colonel that maybe is a new mole for Elizabeth and Philip, Phil's grand plan is let's have Martha bug Gad's office. Elizabeth is like, there is no fucking way she'll do that. Uh, no knock on your charms, Romeo, as she said, which was hilarious. Philip's like, hold my beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like hold he knows my... exactly what's going to work. He does. He, he absolutely does. And he is so confident with Elizabeth and, did you, like, have any guesses in that moment? Because this is, you know, like, a couple of minutes before the proposal scene, what Philip slash Clark was going to try to do to convince Martha to bug Gad's office? Did you have, like, any guesses in the moment? Yeah, I thought he was going to take her away on a romantic vacation. Mm, also, yeah, that also makes sense. Because, like, I, I the, the, like, marriage thing just feels, like, too real, too permanent. Also, like, is this priest real? Like... <laughs> Like, is the priest also a KGB agent? Like, these are... That's a great question. I actually don't know the answer to that, and I don't know if we ever find out. Because in my brain, this is my, like, 2022 brain, I was like, who's giving these guys a marriage license? Like, don't you have to show us... I've never been married, but, like, probably have to show that you're a real person. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like, for the courthouse, maybe, but, like... The Clark can produce documents or like maybe it's that they get married in front of the church, but like never file a marriage license with the state of Virginia or with the district of Columbia. I don't know. Maybe, but Martha seems like the kind of person that like would want that. Yeah. Needs to lock it down, you know? Um, as as someone who has married other people before, (laughs) thanks to $50 and a fake church on the internet, um, that is very easy. And I did not have to check my sister and her now husband's uh, uh, IDs. Yeah, but they also got a real marriage license. <laughs> the ceremony's not True, the real I part. True, <laughs> I did. I did sign a, a marriage license exactly from the state of Colorado. Exactly, but like to get that license, you have to like produce who you are. <laughs> Which again, like you're right. Like Clark totally could have done that. Like. I'm sure he's got a fake passport and whatever, but like, I don't know. There's something like, there's like too much bureaucracy about this. It was like, what's happening here? (laughs) So I didn't think that this was going to be the move. (laughs) Yeah. And yet the move is very effective at showing a side of Philip as Clark that the show has had us associate more with Elizabeth. And that is like a certain 
coldness and bordering on sociopathy um, to the agents that they are running because it's always Elizabeth who has the more extreme position, Elizabeth who like is more willing to like take risks, Elizabeth who is more willing to like manipulate others seemingly. And yet here we have, as you put it, as we were getting ready for the show, like Clark brings out that side of Philip um, to a significant extent because the... Like, the proposal itself is, you know, like I said, saccharine and or adorable in a very saccharine way that would, like, makes me want to vomit. <laughs> but is, like, at the same time, totally it's – a, it's a level of manipulation that I think is unmatched by any other kind of manipulation in this incredibly manipulative world or season of television. Um, the, like, depth and extent of it. Yeah, I mean – And, and – Matthew Reese has Clark's face, like express that for a split second. Yes. That's exactly where I was going to go. Like, like you're absolutely right. But also I think that just like doubles down on, on like Philip slash Clark being a sociopath (laughs) is like the, the accuracy with which like the, his face can demonstrate that. And we can see the way Martha reads that and then we read it differently. Right. And that's sort of the same thing as the last episode where, um, Philip as Clark is like disgusted by the like parent situation. And we get that flash of his face walk when he's walking into the hall, but like to Martha, Martha doesn't read it as that. And Martha just reads it as his, like, I guess like his flat affect, but like, that's not really what it is or that's not Mm -hmm. only what it is. Yeah. And Martha is in so deep in so many ways. I mean, she, you know, tells Clark, like you came out of nowhere, like a sign from the universe. And the tragedy of that statement is that Clark didn't come out of nowhere. He came out of the KGB identifying Martha as a person to recruit to like, you know, commit to be like one of their most important assets in the entire American government. Like the, the, the contrast between what Martha understands to be happening and the reality of the situation is just such a vast gulf in a way. It's not always the case. I don't think at least in this first season for other characters. Well, Martha is the only person it seems that is unaware that she is doing this work, right? With everyone else, I think that we've encountered, they know that they're being run at least to some extent. They're, they know that they're doing something shady and Martha does not, right? Yeah. I mean, what the only example is Annalise from the very beginning of the season. Right. Okay. That yeah 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 I, like there's a, there, I think I think that's that's the closest parallel yeah but there's a certain like edginess to Annalise as a character yeah and the show is giving Martha only as kind of like as, as a naive right yeah yeah as a naive and, and someone who's just like a sponge for Clark's like weird forms of yeah affection. Which that is, is like doled sad. out in a like precisely measured way. Back to the sociopath thesis, yes, pre- <laughs> precisely, yeah. um, including the way in which Clark or uh, Clark slash Philip gets her to agree to put the bug in Gaz's office, 
And like by by narrating, you know, I want to go into this with both eyes open. My ex-wife and I, you know, didn't care enough. We didn't know how to be married. It's all different with you. Like, I mean, and the thing is, like, again, the, soci- the sociopath nature of all this, Clark does know exactly what this marriage is. Oh, yeah. And also, he's not exactly lying. True. Right? Like, that's True. sort of the part that's interesting. Yeah. Here. Like, mm-hmm, him mm-hmm. and his last wife didn't know how to be married. In fact, they weren't really married. Yeah. And so what is a real marriage to Philip slash Clark, I think, is a question that's, I think, on its way to being resolved. But it certainly is up in the air here. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts about the wedding itself? I know I know, we have some aspects of it for later later on in the show, but... Uh, again, like, what is happening here was my first <laughs> and biggest thought. Especially because, like, Elizabeth and Claudia in their outfits are, like, talking shop for several minutes at the church. Yeah. yeah. I really struggled. The the I said this to you before we started recording, but, like, the Clark-Martha storyline, like, I really struggled with it. Um, I think because I'm just, like, Martha open your eyes and uh, before we before we dive into the wedding just like one last thing yes please which is the bug is in the shape of a pen and yet martha doesn't put it in the pen holder or very like true on the desk or whatever and so i on the one hand i understand that right like you don't want it to be clear that it's not really a pen but it's also like don't put it on the shelf. It it's on the like shelf with like his his medals and like honors and stuff. It just like if Gad is not suspicious of Martha, then he's bad at his job. <laughs> True, but as as we have learned from season one of The Americans, the FBI not great at their job. No, not great at their job. Sometimes Stan is good at his job, and sometimes he's not. Correct. Um, so the wedding, I mean, in some ways, the most interesting thing about the wedding to me is the conversation that Clark and Clark and his sister have, i.e. Philip and Elizabeth have, um, at the end when they're just talking to one another while Absolutely. everybody else is still up at the altar, right? So Elizabeth and Phil were never actually married. I don't know whether Elizabeth is being sincere or genuine when she says that was actually touching. I'm surprised. Um and I don't know whether to read that as like Elizabeth running Philip to your consistent point of yeah. the season, or that's her genuine sadness over the fact that they never actually did get married. Because Elizabeth asks Philip, you know, would things have been different if we had said the words? I think that it's interesting to like think about that statement in relation to the two oaths that Mm. Nina takes Mm -hmm. because she says the words in the beginning and then she said like then she comes clean and like says the truth right so like I think there's like always going to be an ambiguity there because like words don't words don't really like do anything without like meaning and action behind them. <laughs> Just, wow. Like are what's we in his, the cave already? <laughs> I was going to say like, what's his name? JL Austin has some, uh, has some beef to express. Yeah. Or like, I, I don't know. I spent a lot of yesterday talking a ton about a rent. And so I was thinking about like words and deeds and like speech and action. So we're going to get into that in the cave. But like, <laughs> but I do think the point is like, would it have been different if we said the words like 
I think it's fitting that it's a question from Elizabeth because Correct. she is often giving us the like the harder hitting points to think about. And that it comes from Elizabeth when if anybody in the abstract would say no to that question, it would be Elizabeth who like Absolutely. you know, is basically willing to say anybody to almost any of the agents that she's running, like Absolutely. because of the work that she does. Yeah. So for her, like I don't think that saying the words has to necessarily do an and act a lot, act a lot, perform a lot. Yeah. I think that that's right. I yeah, I think that that's right. Anything else on on the wedding or on the Clark Martha situation that you wanted to? I don't. I don't think so. But like to your point, there's a whole lot else that goes on. So we have the clock returns yeah. finally back from episode two. It did get set up with like a kind of throwaway line an episode or two ago, b- beforehand as well. But Viola like threw a very stereotypical caricatured scene at the black church that she goes to. Also tough um, for me. <laughs> uh, tough hang there. Um, decides to admit to Mrs. Weinberger that yeah. the clock is bugged and she finds herself in like the safe room um, yeah. at the FBI offices with Stan and Gad and one other FBI agent. Yeah. And I was surprised. This was like one of those moments where I, you know, putting my conspiracy theory hat on or just like trying to predict what's happening in, ep- in the episode was surprised that, she wasn't found out for it, but instead was um, like admitted it herself. Yeah. Um, and I thought that it was interesting that we didn't get the confession to Mrs. Weinberger. We Correct. we immediately get the the like repeating of the story to the FBI agents. Yeah. And, you know, this is, I, I suppose, a case where they are good at their job. But Gad and Stan are incredibly solicitous and deferential and kind to her, yeah. to Viola. Yeah. Which is... Surprising? I Like, I don't want to be surprised by that, but I am. And, I mean, I mean, we're presumably supposed to read it as them being manipulative, yes? Like, yeah, no, of course. And I, and I don't think, if I'm remembering correctly, we we know what the consequences are for Viola. Like, I believe this is her final appearance in the okay. Americans in this episode. You know, but like, presumably, like, they put her in jail, correct? I, I think that if they put her in jail, we would know it. Right? Because I think, like, even though we do get a lot of, like, the FBI agents being bad at their jobs in this show... I don't think the show would miss an opportunity to be like, see, here's a time where they like did something well. Good point. Very good point. So, and I, I suspect my, my read is that they probably hope that Viola for some reason will be contacted by these people again. So like, I, I think they don't put her in jail because like it's a potential like path to Philip and Elizabeth. Yeah. Excellent point. And I did just look it up. This is the last appearance of uh, of Viola, um, played by Tanya Patano. But also, thank God for those wigs. Thank, yeah. <laughs> thank God for those wigs. I mean, oh my gosh. Do, should we talk about this now? Are we saving this for later? But like the scene of Stan with in the follow-up to like now we maybe have all of these connected things. Whether or not Stan is good at his job. And we talked a little bit about the way in which, you know, his, to, to jump back to the Nina stuff for a moment, we've talked a little bit about how, like, 
the relationship between Stan and Nina is like just this vehicle for Stan to consistently mess up. Right. Like, and in a, I would say a parallel way to some of the complications or complexities that we see with Philip and Elizabeth, where emotions are really getting in the way there. And we can are consistently reminded of that with them. I think we see that with Stan too, where like his vision is clouded by like his feelings for Nina question mark. Um, yes, I think yeah, definitely. And I mean, you're, you're. I think that's the right the right way to put it because it's when Stan's emotional entanglements and like truly emotionally deep relationships yeah. with other people are what he understands to be or is on some level for him a deep emotional relationship yeah. with Nina, but like also with Philip gets yeah. in the way of him being good at his job, right? It's not for nothing that it's yeah. the first episode before Stan and Philip start their bonding and their quasi genuine friendship yeah. that Stan is suspicious. And yeah. afterwards, like we have not seen him be suspicious about the two of them since. Yeah. I think that that is right. And I also think we saw Stan's relationship with, with Chris, with Amador, yeah. like, like impact his judgment. And now it's like, it has all these ripple effects, but in the scene with Viola where Gad and Stan are arguing, like Stan is once again, like good at his job. Right. And so I think even though it's connected to the Amador stuff, like the, the sort of distance from that Mm -hmm. in this particular moment allows Clan uh, allows Stan the clarity that he sort of were missing in those other moments. Clarity is a really good word for that, for his role in the meeting with the deputy attorney general, where they're like, here are the sketches that we got from Viola. Then here's this other sketch that we got. And these are the same people. Yeah, exactly. Also, those sketches didn't really look like Philip and Elizabeth, but that's fine. That's the point. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. I also have clarity, Danielle, that we should move on to the segments. What a great segue. Thank you. Thank you. Um, do you want to lead us off for Bar of Nostalgia for the Unremembered <laughs> yeah. 80s? Yeah. My, I wrote in big letters in my notes, arcade games. I, <laughs> I, first of all, I love, I love an arcade game. It reminds me of like a pizza place in the late 80s. <laughs> I definitely, like, enjoyed going to the arcade in the early 90s. Nice. And there's something about that sit-down arcade game that right. Claudia <laughs> Right. Where it's like, I feel like hipsters buy those as their kitchen tables now. <laughs> Look, there is a barcade that is coming uh, to Plattsburgh, New York, supposedly. Stop Am it. I excited about this? Yes, I am Listen, very excited about this. Barcade is my favorite bar in Philly. They have this game that is, um, you just are filling pints of beer. <laughs> it's like <laughs> so easy, but so fun. Like give me, yeah, give me arcade games all the way. My, um, my brother is epileptic. So we had a Nintendo for like a year. And mm-hmm. then, um, once Kieran was diagnosed, they, my parents took the Nintendo away. So like, Beyond, like, Super Mario 3, I've never really played video games. So I think, like, the arcade games are a thing where it's, like, you don't have to have, like, skill. 
borrowed nostalgia for Danielle's childhood. Exactly, and it's also like oh, it was a small experience. Like I should, I should get myself an old school Nintendo and Super Mario Three. Give me that raccoon tail. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, maybe when the next time you visit Plattsburgh, the barcade will have opened. Oh my god, your lips to God's ears. We can reenact. uh, (laughs) We can reenact the the Claudia and Elizabeth scene, which we will get to. I'd like to point out as well that this is the second episode with a Pat Benatar reference. I love it. I don't. I'm, I'm assuming we get a Pat Benatar song at some point. I don't remember this exactly. It's a lot of coin. <laughs> um, <laughs> they there's a lot of coin that they have to spend on songs. I in know this, in this show. Listen, we um, gotta we gotta make it real. <laughs> just just you wait till the finale. I'm um, so in the excited. song they choose. For like the climactic scene in this in the series finale is like so cliche and ridiculous and yet utterly perfect and I may <laughs> have cried at it before in my life. Oh my god, I cannot wait, and I also feel very excited about recording the finale episode <laughs> in forty to forty two years. Yeah, you know, as as one does as the pro con list grows. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do we want to do a little wig check? Always, always want to do wig check. So first of all, I mean, again, thank God for wigs because it does <laughs> feel like that is going to save us because at least Philip and Elizabeth and Elizabeth more than Philip though, like the drawings just reminded me of how bad these wigs are, but also how different they look. Short hair Elizabeth is like perhaps the best uh, gag that this whole show has going. (laughs) Yeah, and we see in this episode as well, maybe not just in this episode, but the the way in which the wigs and makeup and accessorizing that Elizabeth does in particular, like changes the age she presents as, right? She looks as uh, Clark's sister, like a solid 10 to 15 (sighs) years older than Carrie Russell actually is. And she is, than she is in many of her disguises. Well, and I think that also brings us to the outfits at the wedding, which are perhaps the most 80s outfits we've gotten this entire season. Look, I am a fan of floral prints, as Danielle can attest to. Please <laughs> never give me the floral prints that yeah. uh, Claudia as uh, as Clark's mom and Elizabeth as Clark's sister are wearing. You're a fan of floral prints, but not Laura Ashley, which is the <laughs> version we got in this. It's like basically they – it's like – Straight from the sound of music, Maria <laughs> sewing clothes from the drapes, like bedspreads become like dresses and suits. <laughs> oh, and there were like frilly collars, it's just like go back to bed, bath, and beyond. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, like, Clark, this is the best dressed Clark will ever be in the entirety of the Americans. I, I is, believe it. Um, not that that's a high bar. <laughs> and, like, I actually kind of liked Martha's dress. Oh, Martha actually looked, listen, against Claudia and Elizabeth, Martha looked amazing. <laughs> but but I do also feel like Martha, of all the women in the show, has the most 80s fits in general. Like yes. consistently, I'd agree with you. There. She's like she definitely has like the right or the requisite amount of shoulder pads. 
of the 80s requires. And so, um, but I, I agree with you that her, her wedding dress was like, it was charming. Yeah. It was not, yeah. And that's in part because they rushed it because she insisted on doing it this weekend. Why would you, I, I just like, there, you know what? There are just going to be some choices that I don't understand and that's totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, the last part of 80s nostalgia that I have, and this is like a, yeah, it's on the con list of 80s nostalgia, but it's like it's extremely the diet culture when, but it is a great line from Claudio and she's like, <laughs> The pac Pac-Man eating is no calories. I was like, yeah. oh, a little okay. dots, right? <sighs> oh, yeah, that's and it's it's fascinating for to me that they give Claudia that line because like that is clearly something of American culture totally. and this eighties ness that she has actually internalized because she's not it's not like she has her guard up with Elizabeth. Like no. she's brutally who she is with Elizabeth. Yeah. Yeah, I also wonder if we're meant to read it as a bit of a dig against Elizabeth. I, I think that's plausible. You know? Uh, that's a, that's some very Elizabeth thinking of you, to think that literally everything Claudia Cesar does is a conspiracy against oh, Elizabeth. The part where they're talking shop, and we can get into this more, but the part where they're talking shop and Claudia's like, I know that you called like the boss on me, blah, 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 blah. I was like, this feels like a little too whiny for Claudia. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Oh, but it fits with the the eighties of it all. <laughs> yes. Um we're gonna we're gonna keep some eighties vibes going into our minor character yes. of the week. Would you like to share that with the audience? Yeah, so minor character of the week this week is Sarah, who is <laughs> played by Jill Shackner. And Sarah is the like eighties goddess guitarist <laughs> that shows up. Um, late to band practice, (laughs) late to band practice, but also it seems like, and, and I would also like to call her Paige's competition. Oh, Paige clearly views it that way. I mean, fair, but also like what a great entrance. And then you just see Matthew like salivating over her. Well, like to be fair, like she just takes Matthew's yeah. guitar because like she is too cool to have brought her guitar with her to band practice yeah. because she's a goddess and uh, like lays down a really, really sick riff. Yeah. And Matthew's like, yes, please. And also Paige, Paige also is like, I get it. You know, yeah. <laughs> like that's, <Yeah. laughs> I just like, there's a lot of, I would, I would say that this generally is like such a random scene. Extremely random. But I loved it for the, like the, uh, girlfriend, boyfriend dynamics. And also just like this actress just like takes over the scene. Like what great casting, what great energy, like random, but, but we love we we do love Daniel. What's in the dossier this week? Okay, in the dossier, <laughs> I do feel like there have been a couple of like these could be in the dossier entries, but the thing that's in the dossier and like the minute that we get the till death does us till death do us part, I was like Martha's dead. <laughs> Martha's gotta die. The only way out of this is Martha dies, right? Like they. Philip and Gre- I mean Elizabeth and Gregory were in love, and like Elizabeth, though it was t- tough for her, was like, yeah, 
for the mission, we got to kill this, this guy that I like spent a lot of my life in love with. Martha is a walking corpse. <laughs> wow. Strong. <laughs> I mean, like it might not happen next episode, but like it is coming. <laughs> no comment per usual. Great. Um, I do. Is there a Daniel dossier pass? Really, what we should do is, if we were more dutiful, is we would have kept like a list of all the Daniel dossier yeah, entries Maybe we'll in an actual Google Doc dossier. Um, I I feel like you've had some Nina suspicions. I feel like there was a moment, maybe it was with the with your sisters, where you had a Nina point that is not inconsistent with the turn she makes here. That Nina is that Nina is then turns back on yeah, yeah. then turns back on to stand but even like more I think you've made a more pointed uh, comment than that before yeah I think that that's right I think like again the actual turn so to turn on Stan wasn't surprising to me it was just that it really could have gone either she turns on Stan or like you know, or she is found out by the, the KGB, right? Like it, it could have gone either way. So yeah, I think that like, I probably have like, I would maybe not predicted, but intimated, Mm -hmm. um, this kind of turn in Nina. But again, I think like we, like we talked about, like this feels really earned. So it's not the, it's not the most incisive the dossier has been, but we'll take it. We'll take it as a win. Yeah, I yeah, put a W on the on the pro list. Dossier for, case yeah, closed. Dossier. Nina right. is a double agent. <laughs> we have, we have a lot of gloss to so take in gloss. here. Um, you commented uh, when we were getting ready to record on the the spycraft of this episode. Yeah, I think a couple of episodes ago I was saying, and even last episode that we're not we hadn't gotten a lot of spycraft lately. So this one we get a drop site, we get an X on a tree. Elizabeth is like looking around is like somebody following her car yeah yeah um she picks up a jar weird (laughs) why would a jar be on a car but that's fine uh she picks up a jar i thought it was like a like a discarded like empty like beer can or something no it's like a sauce jar but that's discarded and then inside of it is like plastic and in the plastic is a postcard and, dot. Yeah. and in the postcard is with if with a black light you can see the arrow that she then peels back and then very tiny film it was just like yes i love yeah. it <laughs> really great it is also a chance i think for us to just highlight the spycraft plot mechanics of totally. this episode as you referenced above like this is a thing that we're not focusing on in this episode because it's less significant, I think, to both of us than all of the other things that we've talked about. But, like, there is this potential asset who's a colonel in the Air Force yeah. that they are maybe going to try to recruit. And so it makes sense to me that by raising this major plot possibility, that would be a way in to let us, like, remind our the yes. audience of the carefulness and precision of the Elizabeth Phillips spycraft. Yes, absolutely. And I would also say that like, even though we, even though the way that we get the news of the fact that they did call Moscow to like, to sort of challenge Claudia or to make sure that those directions were real and correct and whatever, I think also the fact that we don't get 
the scene of them doing that sort of speaks to this like set of stakes and like that there's yeah. more stuff going on behind the scenes that we're not seeing, but we're, we are seeing these like big moments in the spycraft plot. Question about the spycraft that, I mean, I guess maybe I sh- should have rewound and taken a second look at this, but when Elizabeth is driving down that street, that is Philip in a disguise that like is giving her a signal, right? Like in the background uh, yeah. when she looks aside. That's that's how I interpret yeah, it. Yeah, I thought okay. so too. But then she keep right, she like there's she keeps looking like she's very if if you were just watching somebody like drive down the dark street, she's like sus- like looks suspicious. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's Philip. Okay. Very good. Um more driving surveillance ditching scenes to come for you. And I don't remember if it was in the next episode. We should also just point out that, like, so the finale is called The Colonel. So clearly, like, this plot dynamic is something we'll spend a little more time on next week. Yeah, and also, like, the episode, the last few episodes, all of these things have been, like, stitched together. And we're getting, even with the plot coming back in now, we had, like, a scene last episode that was, like, kind of confusing. But we're getting it again, right? So, like... All of these pieces are starting to come together in a way that, like, even though some of it is a little bit bonkers, is also, like, really satisfying. Yeah, I'd agree with that. In the spycraft as well, we have the Pac-Man scene, which not only reveals diet culture (laughs) and uh, the like, but also more, let's call it game playing, if we will, between Elizabeth and Claudia. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Elizabeth, and it's, it's the, it's the common conflict between the two of them, except here it is allegorized through Pac-Man. Yeah. I mean, it is so fitting that they are both playing games, but also that they're not playing the same game for most of this, uh, For most Excellent. of this conversation. Excellently put. Right. I mean, you know, and Elizabeth tells Claudia, you're good at games, right? Like she <laughs> yeah. thinks, because of course, Elizabeth's thesis, which is not incorrect, is that she's being run in more ways than one by yeah. Claudia. Yeah. I think Elizabeth is frustrated with herself for not realizing it from the jump, because that's usually the thing that she's good at realizing. But like to jump back to our earlier conversation, Like, all of this gets more difficult when emotions get involved, which is basically the thesis of all of my work. (laughs) (laughs) Glad we can be consistent with uh, your work life and (laughs) (laughs) quasi-work (laughs) life. We talked a little bit about Matthew's band with, you know, the, like, (laughs) goddess entry before, but did you want to talk a bit more about how you're thinking about it? Yeah, I think for... They're Matthew's what, 15, 16? Yeah. They're not bad. Uh, I thought they were bad. <laughs> wow. Well, okay, I'm 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 assuming that I would only go watch them perform if Sarah is there to be lead singer okay. and lead guitarist. I but. was like, Paige must really like this guy. <laughs> she does. Um she does. As she and I and I think kind of the the thing that is worth noting and it's like 90% a random scene to your point earlier, but the thing that does tie it up to broader issues is we get this really, oh. I think, fascinating conversation between Paige and Elizabeth that is, as is typical, operating both on like the parent-child level yeah. 
and is operating on the spy level. At first, Elizabeth is very, very gentle Mm -hmm. with Paige when Paige is, like, clearly sad that Matthew likes Sarah more than he likes Paige. Yeah. but then we get this line from Elizabeth, right? We see what we need to see in other people, including things that aren't aren't really there. Which is like kind of hard was like a definitional of Elizabeth's life, clearly, but also indicative of a whole number of other things. Was really piercing, right? Because then she also says, like, yes. he doesn't. He likes her better. Yes. Which is like So, one, I would just say, like, in terms of the parent-child and spycraft level, again, uh, entry in the dossier for Paige, like, knowing what's up. That was on my list of questions to ask you. (laughs) Um, But I think, like, the relationship between Elizabeth and Paige is so interesting because on, on the one hand, it has all these hallmarks of, like, teenager girl mom relationship. But it also has, like, there. there's, like, a way in which Elizabeth is willing to be more honest with Paige than anybody else. Correct. And I can't quite figure it out, but, like, I, I, I'm here for it and I really appreciate it because I think it reveals to us as the audience things that we don't get about Elizabeth because she's always so guarded with everyone else and not that she's not guarded with Paige, but I don't think she's guarded in the same way. I think that is a wonderful understanding of the scene. And particularly because in a certain way, by the end of this conversation, it's almost as if Paige is the one providing emotional support, i.e. doing some light parenting to Elizabeth because Paige asks her, well, you know, is, is that, is that what happened between you and dad? Yeah. So it's like, as Elizabeth is talking about, you know, and, and she has to have a certain clarity and not see what we need to see in other people or only see what we need to see in terms of, I need to see how they can be useful for me in advancing my spy goals. Yeah. Right. But on an emotional level, she has to strip away what she kind of wish projects into other people or like fan casts into them. Except for, like, maybe that is what she did or should have done or had to do or something with Philip. And Paige just, to your point, calls her directly on it. Yeah. And and again, like, I think maybe this is also, like, I tend to read this in terms of, in terms of who Elizabeth is and, and, like, the many masks of Elizabeth. But, like, maybe this is also telling us a little bit about who Paige is, the critical role she's playing not only as their child and like a reason for them to continue to interact and be together that has this like emotional resonance, but also that, um, that she is like, I don't know. I I keep wanting to read her as like this sort of like bastion of truth. Like there's, there's a, there's a certain honesty about Paige that like keeps coming through and that's doing a lot of important work. And we'll continue to do so into the future of the Americans. Very excited. We get one other page scene in this episode and that is her and Philip (laughs) at Philip's apartment. (laughs) Um, A like it's, it's Philip has upgraded in the sense that he went from sad motel to sad, basically empty apartment. With a dining room table, though, so at least I don't have to sit on the bed to eat the pizza. Wonderful. Mac and cheese. Mac and cheese. Um, The three cheeses. Oh, it makes a point. I was like, okay, man. Congratulations. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
but also like this strange we're gonna throw grapes at each other moment i know but i like as someone who has done a lot of catching of goldfish in my mouth when my dad throws them as a little kid i there was a again like there was something really lovely about this and and i think Paige sort of doing similar work in a different way with philip is like bringing out these like these like more honest or more sort of like maybe maybe not honest but authentic like moments of of him where he's like stripped down yep which happened in the i feel if it was the previous episode or the one before when henry and Paige go to the sad motel and they hang (laughs) out and they like have a conversation about capitalism and then get snacks from the vending machines and the guy was peeing and i was like is this guy a spy (laughs) the right question to ask i'm still waiting for the like previously on in one of these episodes where it's like (laughs) the dude with the ducks that tried to abduct Paige and henry (laughs) also where was henry in this episode So it's funny you say that. So the Americans wiki did note that this was one of the few episodes in which there is no Henry at all. It did not make sense for Henry not to be here. No, but what we did, we did get the line that Henry had buried the keys to Philip's apartment when uh, Philip and Elizabeth are talking at the travel agency. So it's clear that Henry is just like so not okay with this arrangement that he literally buried the keys in the backyard and won't tell Elizabeth where they are. Wild. So I guess I say I, they they actually do provide an explanation as to why Paige, but not Henry, is at the apartment. Me, uh, I'm willing to like accept a maybe there. I just like in my family, if somebody had buried keys, they would have to go twice as long. <laughs> <laughs> like if you're like it's a punishment to go to this place. You're like, yeah, go and keep going. <laughs> Too bad we should have we should have brought back the Hanley scissors just for an exploration of the of this oh, key burying symbolism. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I will say, like, this is I think not too much of a spoiler for going forward that like Henry, as neglected by the show slash neglected by Philip and Elizabeth, becomes a like recurring almost joke uh, of the Americans. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. I think that that's all we've got in gloss. I believe so. Should we descend into the cave? You're going to have to lead the way. (laughs) Actually, we had a lot of different options for this one, but I think we're going to, well, we're going to take it old school and go to the Bible. (laughs) Very, very old school. (laughs) Um, So this actually came up in a conversation that I was having with people yesterday, which is how my life is. I think that we want to talk, this episode is called The Oath, and so I think we want to talk about oaths. Um, And where better to go with oaths than the the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, the Old Testament, you know, call it what you will. (laughs) (laughs) But... Yesterday, I call it bourgeois propaganda. (laughs) The opiate of the masses, if you will. (laughs) Oh, Marx is here in the cave with us, (laughs) always already. (laughs) But I think the so yesterday in the conversation I was having the the story of Noah and Noah's Ark came up, and the fact that God makes an oath to Noah. Um, and the rainbow is the symbol of this oath. And so God swears 
to, or like the oath is, is about never causing a destructive flood ever again. And remembering the oath with Noah and like with, you know, the products of, of creation. And what I was thinking about is it's the, it's switched around in this episode, right? So, or, or we can read it in both ways, but it's not the like person in the um, position of authority swearing to the person who is like weaker or the product of creation or whatever, but it's the other way. It's Nina who is like taking this oath and taking it twice. And it's Martha who is uh, pushing Clark to, to take this other form of oath. And so I was thinking about sort of like, who has the power to to swear and then what words, what those words, what that oath actually does and what it requires of people. And I think this episode gives us so many different perspectives on that very question and like the relationship between taking an oath and having power or taking an oath and like have, being in control. And so I think we the, you know, the Torah, the Hebrew Bible pushes us there in thinking about God taking an oath. Like it asks us to think about the, the position of oaths and the, and the power of words in a slightly maybe different way than we're used to thinking about. Yeah, I think so. And I do not have the uh, expertise in the Hebrew Bible. I would not to, call it expertise. To, to follow, <laughs> I would, uh, to follow, to follow down this path of the cave so much. But I will just kind of build on what you were saying and say that not only is kind of the, the power of the question, yeah. but the kinds of obligations that are created by swearing an oath and the parties to the oath that is sworn, whether it is yeah. the Hebrew Bible or whether it is Martha and Clark or whether it is Nina and Arcadi and the KGB, the question of to what extent does the thing that the oath obligates you to do what is to what extent is that driven by those power relations that yeah. you were talking about? To what extent is that driven by some sense of moral or ethical duty or obligation yeah. or correctness or righteousness, right? If we want to stick with the with the religious theme of it. So like what are the sources and what is shaping the kinds of obligations? I think is something that both your journey to the cave and the episode is giving to us. Yeah, and I would just say that like I think Nina is the figure that like gives us the, the place to ask these questions in the most fruitful way. And I do think that there's something really interesting about the fact that not only do we see Nina turn in this episode, right. But we also see her like taking an oath that has been given to her, right. Like words that have literally been put in her mouth. Arcadi is like, say these words. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> doesn't even have to tell her, right? Just hands her the yeah. very heavy piece of parchment. Very heavy. And then in the, the parallel scene at the end, she has created her own oath. Right. Mm. And it is also like, we are seeing that scene comes after we sort of watch her, her empowerment through words like vis-a-vis Stan and and after we watched the fake oath that would not pass the Hobbes covenant test no. between uh, Clark and Martha. 
Clark and Martha, man, <laughs> they're just what throwing a wrench in all these oaths. <laughs> Are oaths real? Clark and Martha, great question. No. no, definitely not. And again, like back to the point from earlier that you made, like Elizabeth actually, and maybe this does make sense, like maybe for her there's some certain consistency between whatever oath she had to swear to the KGB way back when and the possible meaning had she sworn such an oath to Philip. Yeah. Ugh, what a great descent into the cave. I don't, yes. I don't. We don't often mind new depths of the episode itself. <laughs> I was <laughs> just going to say, we don't, a little we don't more often ridiculous. dig back in, but yeah. hey, we love. Um, Congratulations to Danielle. This is, this is also on your pro list, the pro list of why Danielle is the perfect host of Not Quite Great Books. <laughs> my, the cave being a thing we do in each episode <laughs> is like number one on my pro list and you're number two. So like, thank you. Like, um, a, a good I accept that fully. <laughs> but I think with that, we have come to the end of the episode. Sure have. <laughs> um, so we would of course like to thank producer Amy. <laughs> We're looking ahead to next week. We'll, we'll talk about the season one finale. Wow. wow. Of the Americans. Um, of course, the listeners won't hear this for like another five or six weeks. But, you know, <laughs> it seems like we've gotten there very quickly from our perspective. Uh, so we'll talk about season one, episode 13, The Colonel, with a very special non-Colonel guest. But someone else with expertise and even more expertise in the Hebrew Bible. Amazing. Very excited. Maybe we'll go back into the back into the cave with the Bible. I'm going to insist that uh, that our very special guest take us with some prophets uh, into the cave. Oh, love. And I guess, I don't know, we can probably give a heads up then to the listeners about what is what is coming down the line once we get past uh, yes. the first season. <laughs> we'll probably have an episode that will be both a season one retrospective mm-hmm. and... I've been marinating on like the take to end all takes of not quite great books podcast. Um, You've been about, teasing me with it. <laughs> it's true about a grand unified theory, a meta narrative, which I would usually reject in my academic life, but a meta narrative that I will stick to uh, in a diehard way here about Danielle and I's respective tastes in movies and television. Yes. That I, I indeed have been perhaps a bit cruelly, uh, I think I first threw this out there that I had this like literally two months ago. One million. It was like we were recording episode two. <laughs> I think so. Um, so I've, I've been thinking about it. I've been constructing it. I've been in the take lab. I love and- a meta narrative. So I'm like, so on board for whatever this is. <laughs> That's actually might factor into the meta narrative <laughs> that I offer. It's How a meta narrative about meta narratives well, coming your way on not quite great books. <laughs> and I feel like we should also tease that we are going to spend some time with not only the Americans, but also not the Americans this summer. Correct. Um, I have maybe convinced John, I and other friends of John have maybe convinced John to watch Moon Knight. So we'll maybe do a little Moon Knight, a little Loki, yeah, a little, a little so. Marvel yeah, dabbling. Which, which will be the, it is only fair if we want to talk about O's, this is like my oath to you, yes. Danielle is that it is only fair that we flip the roles where you become the expert in the show and I become the noob. Honestly, that's dangerous. <laughs> yes, I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, but that is all from us for now. So thank you for joining us on Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. Not Quite Great Books.
Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. It's created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.